Hello and welcome to Moving Beyond Stigma, the podcast where we talk about all things mental health. I am your host, Michelle Crossman, and today we have a couple guests here to talk about a very important community-based charitable organization that focuses on creating safety for survivors of abuse to reclaim their voices and help them heal. This organization is called The Gatehouse. Bringing into the conversation today, we have Maria, Stuart, and Jasmine. Welcome to Moving Beyond Stigma. Thanks for having us here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to see where the conversation goes today. And to get us started, I would love for each of you to just take some time to introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at the Gatehouse. Go first. Uh, my name is Maria. I'm the director of the Gatehouse. I've been here for about 13 years and I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Hi, I'm Jasmine. Uh, I've been at the Gatehouse for about, I think, about three years now. I started as a placement student, and I'm, I'm now a program assistant here at the Gatehouse, and I help coordinate um, the Phase 1 programs, which is our program that uh, participants who first come to the Gatehouse usually comes into, and a little bit of a little everything else as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and I am Stuart, and uh, I'm program assistant here at the Gatehouse. I've been here since 2011, and yes, I am a survivor of sexual abuse myself, so it brings me a very pleasure to be here today to talk about some things that nobody wants to talk about. So thank you. Yes, thank you all so much. Um, as I was reading into the website and everything, again, I mentioned in my email that I've been following on social media for quite a while. And then when I reached out to you to um, do this podcast, I wanted to dig a little deeper, right? So I took a bigger look into the website and looked at the programs that you offer. And um, I have to say, I really love how much information is there but it's also not overwhelming like it's very from my perspective anyways it seems very accessible that way again like having the brochures accessible to people um which again could easily be printed out for people as well and handed out um it seemed like a very tangible place to start um especially you know for something that is extraordinarily overwhelming to try to take that first step to join any kind of program to get any kind of help that can be daunting and overwhelming. So having a site like that, that was just quite welcoming and informative, but also not too much. Um, It was really, really great to see. And then I got into the history side of the website as well, which I thought was very fascinating. How much history the building has and how long um, these programs have been up and running. Because I honestly, like up until a few years ago, I really had no idea that the gatehouse even existed. Um, so I am sure that there's still lots of people out here that don't know, um, which was a big reason why I wanted to very much do this podcast and talk to all of you. Yeah. So what, um, aside from, I guess, personal experience, cause obviously a lot of times it tends to be the big drive when we kind of zone in on very specific areas when it comes to mental health and abuse, um, and addictions. And, you know, we tend to usually have a personal connection to it when we, go this far into it with our work. Um, was there any other reason that stood out for each of you to decide to start working with the gatehouse? Yeah, I, for me, I wanted to help people. It was in another field before a whole other career. And uh, that career promised to be a helping field and it turned out it wasn't. Um, so everybody can go look mm. up my bio now and, and now I know what it is. Um, <laughs> for me. Um, and I wanted to help people on a more heart level, right? On the more of that emotional connection. 
uh, as opposed to that business-like um, connection that an HR person has to have, right, with the staff that uh, they're engaging with, of course. Um, of course, what you mentioned, the lived experience, but wanting to give back in a way that was also transformational on a social level as well. Like we're actually making huge impacts uh, and transformative social change here at the Gatehouse in a myriad of ways that we're going to talk about. But that's all I have on that for now because I can go on for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Maria. Um, similarly, um, I didn't plan on working in like the social kind of work field. Um, uh, I had other plans, and I realized like. I, but I've always wanted to help other people. Um, and that field, it was kind of what I wanted to do was like, okay, there's only so much I can do to help others. And then so I, I looked at programs, came across um, this program, and I got uh, placement here at the uh, Gatehouse. And then I like to joke that, uh, you know, I couldn't, I just couldn't stay away after placement um, because this place kind of just gets a grasp on you um, just with how safe um, and inclusive um, it's. This space is a very, um, I don't know if magical is the right term, but it's such a safe place that um, I really just can't believe. Um, and the work that we do, it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to be there for participants and support them in any way possible. Um, uh, so that's that's kind of my journey here at the Gatehouse. Yeah. And for myself, you know, well, uh, right off, with it was very, very selfish. I came here with the intent of just helping myself. And back in 2011, because I was very much, well, put it this way, I was very, very much a broken man. And, and, and that's a gross understatement on my part, to say the least. But what it brought me to uh, after doing the programs was obviously I, I became volunteering. And, uh, you know, one of the things I really didn't expect was, well, I came here uh, not having a voice. Well, well, after being here a while, I have the, I did develop a voice in many, many aspects. And, uh, you know, one of the things was like such yeah. as, uh, just being able to, you know, being able to communicate with people. And and, uh, and when I talk about volunteering, well, my voice, well, one thing I didn't expect was that I would get the same thing from other people with the same experience like coming here. So mm. it created a, a, a great source of mm. personal connection and, uh, and also the ability to, you know, over a period of time, as I discovered who I really was, to uh, to express myself as I learned others that have done the program and, and, and gone through. But, you know, this has been very, very uh, powerful in the sense that, yeah, I've, create, I've found and I've found my voice. But at the same time now, I'm giving back to other men and women. Uh, primary, my primary role here is obviously to help with the men, but I'm from all over the place here, so I'm not just helping men. Primarily, that's what I've been doing, but dealing with the men that I've been doing with over the years uh, and, and talking about our stories and stuff uh, has brought me a sense of power to my voice, which I never really, I really ever thought possible. So, you know, day after day that I'm here and working with everybody and people around me, people yeah. coming to the house, well, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard for words to, the voice that I've found, other than, you know, I have voice in the connection. And, you know, I, when I talk about personal transformation, well, I, I found mine. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the last point I want to make here, too, is that, well, in the field, I know there's a really, a, a really great lack of men that are doing that sort of thing. So uh, I feel very empowered being able to do that and, and also 
with my voice on top of that definitely it's led me to all kinds of things which which obviously at this hour or time we have don't allow me to talk about that obviously but um and that's why i'm here now it's 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 just plain simple in that that uh find my words from others and 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 here i am talking about it today so i hope that clarifies that thank you oh definitely thank you so much i got goosebumps listening to that i find that to be the most um i would say like powerful healing tool honestly is finding your voice um and however it is you get there um and then so to be able to genuinely say like yes i've done this work and i've done that and i've done it in a place that has supported me and helped me see who i truly am and then to take that and then help others you know it only even it just you know a healing journey is never really ended so having that you know it kind of feels like a full circle moment there that just kind of keeps happening and happening and happening where you're continuously helping yourself through helping others now at this point because you have done all of this work and you're surrounded by all of these great people um and mentioning the like magical energy like i can just imagine that like you need to have the right kind of people in these spaces for people to want to come and actually feel seen um and make the strides that you've made to be able to continue the journey and yeah that's absolutely beautiful so thank you so much all of you for sharing those bits and pieces i love that yeah i think starting you know with something that affects us so personally and then moving forward with it is such a brave act especially when it's Mm -hmm something like sexual abuse because again that's something that people don't want to talk about it you know they want to just shove it away somewhere and then keep going and that's not you know we can't get anywhere in our healing journey when we do that and like you said especially with men not talked about enough you know and it's not shared enough so how many people just go through their life and just never talk about it so it's really incredible that you've been able to take that and continue your journey in this way. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. I would love to hear, uh, I guess, a little bit more specifics of a couple of the different programs that are available. Yeah, I can uh, jump in here, uh, Michelle. Thank you. Um, so uh, when participants first come into the gatehouse, um, there's a couple of things. Um, so you have to be a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Um, so uh, it, it the uh, incidents that had to occur before you were 18 years old, and you have to be an adult survivor. Um, so we can only um, accept participants that are 18 and over. Um, and usually um, they would go into our phase one program, uh, but before they can do that, they have to go through an intake assessment first. Um, so they can find that on our website, gatehouse.org. Um, there's an intake form there. Uh, they can be submitted to right now it's Karen, and then from there an inter- uh, kind of an assessment intake, whether it's through virtual, um, on Zoom or on the phone, um, just a, about a half an hour, 45 minute intake assessment. Um, so then they would go into our 15 week phase one program. Um, so it's 15 weeks. Um, it's very psychoeducational in the sense that um, each week is a different topic. Um, so uh, the first week is introductions and how it's rules. Second is isolation to belonging. Then we have anger, we have boundaries, we have inner child, inner child is big one. We have balance three weeks. Um, and in each group, we have each each um, session. There's um, activities, there's information, that sort of thing, and how is very relevant to the experience of a uh, sexual abuse survivor. 
Um, and we have virtual, we have in-person. Uh, right now we're not doing uh, hybrid uh, groups. Um, and we, for our uh, in-person, it's accessible to anybody that's nearby, and here virtual is anybody across Canada. Um, we have uh, all women's groups, all men's group, and all genders group. Um, so we do try to be as inclusive as possible, as safe as possible, while also um, kind of uh, respecting kind of triggers in terms of like genders and et cetera, um, because that it can be um, a, a big uh, a trigger for breath. Sorry, we're trying. We're trying to say activations now um, instead of triggers. I just the connotations behind it. Um, so that can be a big uh, activation for participants, um, understandably so. Um, so yeah, it's a, a little bit of kind of like the big picture of our programs. Um, our in-person groups um, are typically like around. We have two facilitators, I should say, all across our group, we have two co-facilitators. A lot of our co-facilitators are survivors of the program who have gone through the program. Um, and, um, they're not necessarily all survivors. Um, we do have volunteers um, kind of across all spaces um, that um, all show up for the same reasons, right, to try to help support survivors and so forth. Yeah, I think that's the, I think I've covered most of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I love that. Yes. Having um, the, I guess, the lived experience of going through the actual program to then become a facilitator must be also just so incredibly helpful, um, you know, with so many different programs that are out there, like, to have that actual experience, you learn a lot from that side, you know, of what, what works with you and what doesn't work with you. And then, you know, the more knowledge you gain, and then you're able to share that as a facilitator as well, maybe, op you know, offer aside, you know, uh, a different way to look at something or a different way to word something that might help somebody else, because, you know, the original way that you were taught maybe didn't quite sit right with you, you know, and then you can take that and learn from it and keep you know, and it kind of like, again, passes down and keeps growing, which is really beautiful. Yeah. I would love to hear more about the um, inner child work. As you mentioned that it takes um, extra three weeks, you said, I believe. I can, yes. I can definitely expand on that and, and Stuart as well through it, right? Of course. Um, so the inner child uh, really um, is kind of a difficult concept to explain, but all of us have that inner little kid um, and a lot of us are walking around with a wounded inner child um, that haven't done the work, that haven't gone to therapy or peer support spaces. Um, we may be reacting to things uh, as opposed to responding to them, right? So if we're reacting in uh, intense anger uh, or having feelings of intense shame, maybe our little child that was abused at the age of four that is acting out as in an adult body, right? So we do a meditation to reconnect with that child. And sometimes it's different parts um, or different time periods that that inner child has been wounded over time, right? There's people here that have more than one abuser, more than one time being abused, uh, sometimes decades of abuse uh, and different abusers, right? So um, sometimes their inner child may be a four-year-old, sometimes their inner child is at 14, sometimes their inner child is 10, right? Um, so they go back and they meet their inner child at the age of the time of the abuse and they have a conversation with them in this meditation. So we do a visualization with uh, the participant and uh, when they come out of that visualization, they actually um, jot down any conversations they may have had with their inner child 
what was their inner child uh, wearing? Did their inner child give them something? Because sometimes a, a gift may be exchanged in that meditation. Sometimes it's a word. Sometimes the child rejects the adult trying to come in in that meditation. So it, it sounds, um, it definitely is not an easy process, right? It's very emotionally activating for participants to go through that. Uh, it's often the first time they're meeting their inner child or that childlike self that is in their subconscious or conscious sometimes mind um, that um, is driving the adult proverbial bus. <laughs> so we want, we want, we don't want our inner child to drive the proverbial bus. We want the adults to learn to reparent themselves. And often the survivors that come here didn't have a stable, welcoming uh, childhood home. Uh, they had maybe emotional abuse, physical abuse, and sometimes their parents are also the sexual offenders. So um, they're, they're learning to reparent themselves in healthier ways uh, as part of that inner child healing process. Um, there is a great book called The Inner Child Work by Lucia Cappuccioni that uh, people can pick up. It's pink cover. And um, she actually donated a couple of those books here. And that's how we started working on that uh, 25 years ago, incorporating that inner child activity. Um, and I'm going to ask Stuart if you want to talk about the letter writing process that we do with the inner child. Yeah, you know, the, this is a very interesting process that, uh, thank you, Maria. Uh, there's actually two different exercises that, that we conduct when doing this. And one of the ones we do, Maria mentioned about the meditation in the beginning. And, and behind that process of the meditation is that we connect with the inner child. And for some of us, I'm speaking for myself, obviously. I never made that connection uh, as a child or as an adult. So this was very, very foreign to me in a sense. Well, really, in layman's terms, what the heck are you talking about? Yeah. You know, uh, this was my experience because when I did the meditation originally the first time, I did not make that connection. So basically, talking about myself here, here obviously, I'm not talking about others. Is that in my experience, when I did it the first time, I did make the connection, and 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 adding a little bit more to that. Well, basically, Maria kind of touched base on this. Well, when we talk about who's driving that bus, well, I tell you, my child drove my bus from a very, very young age, right into adulthood, uh, to you know, to, to where I was, I was actually able to make that connection. Well, I had to do I had to do the meditation two times. I'll explain with I'll explain about the writing part right after this part. So I did the meditation the second time uh, from one of our uh, one of our facilitators going back many years ago. And she was able to actually help me do that. I was, uh, and also at that time, I, I processed a lot more with myself. So I think I was actually able to do it the second time around because when I first came here, I was too distraught in my own thoughts, could not place them where they belong. So when I actually did the exercise, I, I was basically what I said in the beginning of my statement. What's going on here? I couldn't do it. So I did the second exercise and then I did the writing exercise. Now the writing exercise that we do with this is one of the writing exercises we do with this uh, is that, well, uh, we're using both hands, the right hand or whatever dominant hand you are, being the adult hand, and the non-dominant hand being the child hand. And in this exercise, well, this is just about connection and meeting one another. So in that connection, we, uh, 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 we talk to one another and then, well, our conversation could be anything like that. I, I'm a, again, I'm speaking about myself. My conversation with, my, with myself was my child reminding me of when I was a child, when I felt safe. Uh, uh, just an example of when I would go up to northern Quebec and I would go fishing with my uncle. That's where I found safety because I was in the middle of the bush, middle of nowhere. But in fact, was, to be more precise, I was in the middle of a uh, reserve in Manawaki. And uh, there was no people around. The only people who were there were black bears and wildlife deer, all that kind of thing. 
but it's a safe place for me to go. Why I thought one back there, I have no idea. But that's where I went. So that was a great form of connection for me to, to, to kind of encourage me to keep talking and keep doing what I was doing. That's how I how I took it, that exercise. And which I did, I continued on because when I originally did this exercise, it's funny because going back many years back, we have a uh, uh, we have another program which we do after the the, um, the phase one program that Jasmine talked about, which we call a phase two program. So in at that time it was only eight weeks, and the idea behind this program, without going too far off track here, is we talk more about uh, about being stuck, about being mindful, pause, gratitude, and talk about a story. But anyway, I, I ended up doing it there, and that's where I made the connection. But I was much further along, and I was able to do that. Thank God to Kelly. I still thank Kelly for this to this day. Uh, for doing that with me. So the second part of the exercise, uh, rather another written part of the exercise, which we do, is which I think is equally hard for people is well, we write a letter to our offender, right? And and and, and the thing is, so with writing that uh, that exercise, is for a lot of people, and including myself, and I did write my letter to slash my offender offenders, is that uh, what I was able to do with uh, with that. Uh, you know, aside with help me feeling, you know, inside, with, uh, being able to voice what I, what, what I felt, uh, versus just keeping it internalized, which I did all my life. How angry I was, and that was just another form of being able to express my anger through the letter. So, long long story short, after I wrote that letter, uh, uh, which I found very very healing, I took it outside and I burned. Yeah. Right, which is sometimes things that we do because we don't always have access. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't mail this letter or, or anything of the sort. I needed to do something. I needed to, to get rid of it somehow. So this is another part of the exercise, which we don't often talk about, but sometimes, well, what do we do with that letter now that we've written that? You know, it's very powerful, like with the, with the left and the right hand exercise. Again, that's something I didn't burn that, but because I kept it to remind me of, you know, to this day, if I need to go look back and say, well, Stuart, look how far you've come. That's what I use that for. But the other one, writing my, to my offender, that I had to burn. And hopefully that kind of explains why we do this writing exercise for the beginner child. I can talk about this for another hour because we even have a, a four week, uh, sorry, four or six weeks. Depends on the facilitators. Uh, depends on the facilitators, but we have, like we'll do groups where we just talk about inner child and we'll take out four weeks and we'll get a bunch of people to come on board, male or female, and we can dive in deeper into the inner child because there's so much that's not answered. Even with the three weeks that we do, we could go on a lot more and talk about that. You know, a lot of people like to want to journal and maybe people need time to process the exercises we've given them, like in myself as an example, to be able to figure this out. But there's always a way, and this is what I love about this type of, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, because that's precisely what it is, uh, approach that we that we went to achieve these kind of methods. And don't get me wrong, I don't think it, it works for everybody, but for the amount of people that I've seen come and do this, Majority of people walk away shaking their heads and going, aha, now that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. That, wow. Uh, I love that idea of, especially the, the dual writing exercise. I, yeah, I've never heard that before. Um, and that's really, really such a interesting way to just connect. Um, you know, I've heard a lot about different inner child work throughout different programs and like even through 
just being an artist and like I love connecting with try or trying to connect with my inner child um through like acting exercises and things like that so that's where like my base has kind of settled is in that area I like as an artist I got to explore it that way and then I started doing more reading and research and I was like oh wow this is actually like so much more powerful than I ever realized and I have since then I've had a lot of conversations um with different people who have had those tough conversations with their inner children, you know, and at the varying ages and being like, wow, my inner teenager, she's hurt, you know, and actually being able to sit down and connect with them is so powerful and so beautiful. And I love that you were able to have that experience, even if it wasn't right away, it still happened. And I think that's something that I hope the listeners like really hold on to because we all, we all take a different amount of time, right? You can do that exercise. It might be the third time, you know, before it really settles and sinks in, or it might be right away. We can't really say for sure when it's going to click and like really connect, especially because we have all these fears and walls up and you know, you might not be ready yet for various reasons, you know, and that's why these programs are there to help kind of guide you through those steps. Um, so that's very beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm very glad that that is something that takes um, priority in the healing process with your programs, because especially with, of course, dealing with people who are child sexual abuse um, survivors, they that you know that needs to be paid attention to you can't just heal where you're at right now in your adult life you know you have to go back um and doing that in a safe way in a supported way is just so necessary so that's I'm, yeah i really really love that that is a big part of the program so thank you so much for sharing that and i love that we have whole like whole programs just dedicated to that that's incredible and you just highlighted something too that happens a lot in society the the so he doesn't see the wounded inner child, they see the adult and they, people hear things like, why, why are you talking about this now? Uh, why aren't you over this? And it's like, well, there's a hidden bag of shame that the survivor is carrying that needs to be unpacked in a safe and inclusive space or spaces like the gatehouse. Um, and there's still a lot of shame and stigma associated with being a survivor, right? People out there, um, I think general society doesn't, fully understand the extent of the hurt that is caused by the act of violating a child. And they need to educate themselves on how to actually talk to survivors, be with survivors. And sometimes the best thing you can do is say nothing and be there for that person while they're expressing them, themselves, while they're sharing their story, maybe for the first time. I can't tell you how many people walk through our doors and have said, you know, the first time I shared, I was shut down and I didn't say anything for another 10 years, right? And, um, and it's just, it's sad to hear those kinds of stories. That and it's a very common experience that they've been shamed again or shut down again by the people they're supposed to be able to trust. Yeah, you wanna, you wanna, you feel safe with somebody, you wanna be able to be vulnerable with them and share this very hurtful personal experience that happened to you. And if you're not met with, support and respect and someone who just is there for you that is so heartbreaking so how do you move forward without actually 
being shown what it's like to feel support. You know, you were kind of, you're grasping for it at that point and really being hopeful. And if someone doesn't actually give you that, and again, like you said, it might just be sitting and listening to them. Like you don't have to necessarily do these huge steps because that's what these programs are for. A lot of times that's, you know, that's the work that takes the time. Um, That's definitely a big one. Just having the societal understanding of it. I 100% agree that it's, it's unfortunate how much that that is not um, something that people understand. And, you know, talking about mental health in general, like the understanding around certain disorders has become, you know, a lot better, but still there's still such stigma and shame and all of these things around so much like abuse survivors, people who struggle with addiction, like there's just so many spots and big areas that are still just kind of brushed over at this point. Like people just aren't looking because they don't want to, probably because it's scary to look at and it is, but we're not going to get anywhere if we keep just not looking, you know, if you just close your eyes and turn the other way, you know, like if there no difference will be made at that point. Um, So it is the uncomfortable conversations, you know, that make you want to hide and curl up in a ball, those are the ones that we have to have because it happens to so many people and so many people never talk about it. Or again, they wait 10, 15 years before they talk about it. Or longer. Exactly. Or longer. You never, you never know. Um, and again, unless you're in that situation, that's if you are one of the survivors, that's the only how it feels, of course. But there should be so much more just a general understanding and empathy and just so much less shame would do so much good. (laughs) I also, I got very um, intrigued by the program like breakdowns pages. (laughs) And um, the other section that I would love to chat a little bit about and again, share as much as you would like here about um, the dreams section and nightmare section. Cause again, I know that's something that's so common with PTSD. I myself have nightmares all the time. And I, you know, I've had, it's taken me my whole life to figure out what my, what those like triggers are and what can like activate those stressful sleeps that then carry into these nightmares. Um, and even now it's still something that can shift and change you know it's almost like okay I figured out this area but then for some reason it like worms its way around and like okay but here's this other spot that is going to still activate the stress in you before you go to bed so that these nightmares still happen (laughs) um so yeah I would love to talk about I guess if there's any other like different programs or information that you can share for people who I guess just struggle with kind of nightmares for sure I can highlight um I think the combination approach may be helpful for people. And again, depends, right? There are medications out there that do help to suppress the brain's ability to go into that state of um, having recurrent nightmares. Um, a combination of that with therapy, peer support, and sometimes even our own facilitators, myself, I'll speak from my own experience. When I'm facilitating groups here, uh, I tend to have more active dreams um, that sometimes are confusing. So I guess it can be all, along the lines of a nightmare um, it is a risk of being, you know, engaged with these programs, especially if we have lived experience. And even if we don't have lived experience, like listening to other people's stories, grounding, self-care is a, a huge um, uh, practice that we instill in our volunteers and staff members. 
uh, as well to make sure that everybody is doing that, right? Um, journaling may be helpful to deal with some of the messages uh, that are in uh, nightmares. I often find myself Googling things like uh, I have recurrent uh, loss of teeth uh, nightmare. <laughs> um, and I have one too where um, I'm lost somewhere and I can't find my way out. Um, so like these are things, it's a good indicator. So it's also to how we look at what those nightmares are. They can be very distressing, very scary, of course, right? We don't want to underscore them. Um, there are techniques like lucid dreaming, but again, you'd have to find a, a qualified practitioner to help you do that, um, where you actually learn to take control of the dream that you're in, um, right? And uh, again, it's not for everyone. Journaling is helpful, um, doing some meditation before bed if you can, engage with meditation. Um, I tend to write right after something has come up in a, a dream uh, that is distressing. I will note it down because then I'll forget, but my body will feel it, right? So just knowing that there's a mind-body disconnect for survivors often, um, getting ourselves back to that state of homeostasis is really important when waking up from a nightmare. Uh, saying things like, you are here, you are now, you are safe holding a grounding object, whether that's a teddy bear or your pillow, um, sometimes screaming into the pillow might be helpful for people. It just depends what, what you need to do for yourself. Um, sometimes just going into the shower and taking a shower and trying to go back to sleep if you can. Um, sometimes it's really difficult to go back to sleep. So you might find yourself going to the gym at 3 a.m. because that's what you need to do to resolve your nightmare uh, feelings in your body, right? It's about getting back to feeling uh, calm. So there's there's a myriad of strategies, but um, and I find that sometimes people are afraid to engage with medication for fear of stigma, for fear of being judged, uh, for taking meds. But you know, meds are here; they're out there to um, help people. Um, but it's a combination. You know, like there's no shame in having to take medication to regulate something that is abnormal, right? Like it's we're trying to regulate something that's not normal. Yeah, definitely. I remember when I was younger, um, I just like have always had very active dreams, you know, and then as I got older, I always had a lot of nightmares. So I just thought everyone had nightmares, I just thought that, you know, um, and I even, you know, have go so far as like the paralysis type nightmares and you can't move. Um, so I've dealt a lot with that. And I had no idea that that wasn't just like a normal occurrence for people until I started talking about it in my adult years. And they're like, um, what are you talking about? And I was like, Oh, <laughs> like it was such a shock to me that this wasn't just a thing. Every ex Everybody experienced that sleep, you know, kind of was scary a lot of the times. And then I started having conversations and I realized, oh, it's not supposed to be like this. What did you do to help yourself like regulate, you know, as, as much as possible in, in that situation? A lot of times now, like I have to get up and move around. Otherwise, I can't get back to sleep. Like it's something simple as just like trying to walk. Maybe sometimes I'll turn on all the lights just to like remind myself like, again, this is where I am. I'm here right now. I'm not where I was in that dream. I'll go back to bed. Um, my uh, my ex-partner had to like physically wake me up sometimes before. Uh, so that was also another whole thing, trying to like learn to live with it while living with somebody else. <laughs> I was like, oh, again, you don't experience this to the same extent that I do. Okay, cool. This is a conversation, <laughs> you know, and like dealing with that. Like, oh, I've never really thought about that before. Okay. You know, and again, these things just aren't talked about. So it's not, 
you know, people just don't really necessarily know how to respond to it. And there is so many helpful things to do. Um, like journaling, definitely, like you mentioned, that can be really, really great. Having those kinds of conversations, that's somewhere I still feel like, I don't know if shame is the right word, but I think just fear of being judged to bring up those kinds of conversations with friends, whoever, you know, once I like really realized how um, a lot of people just don't experience that, you know, always so difficult to bring up. Um, it's slowly getting easier, especially because I talk about it publicly like this now. <laughs> but thank you for sharing that. Like, um, it's something you're definitely, you're not alone in that. There, I can guarantee that almost every survivor that walks in this door has had to face at one point in their life or over a period of time, recurrent dreams that are, you know, that are nightmares. Um, the, the trapped one is common. The confused one is common. It's looking for, like, for me, it's looking for the theme. Like, what is this dream really about, right? Our minds, when we fall asleep, our subconscious gets to play. Yes, yes. <laughs> so it's also to how we reframe these things. Um, so our unresolved issues in awake life tend to try and resolve themselves in our subconscious mind. Going to sleep is the biggest loss of control. And it might scare people at this point. The biggest loss of control that we have aside from dying, right? We don't have control about what the heck's going on. For a survivor of child sexual abuse or any form of abuse, really, the loss of control is very activating, right? So some, some people actually struggle with the opposite. They cannot sleep. They have insomnia, right? So um, it, it's, it's running on the same spectrum, but at the opposite side. Um, but knowing that it's your brain, like even how you frame things, it's your brain trying to keep you safe and you feel so safe that you actually fall asleep and your brain's like, well, remember that time when you didn't? <laughs> and you're like, no, I don't want to, <laughs> but you can't right? because you're trapped in an elevator or you're going down a corridor or I'm at an airport and I don't know, I've lost my kids. I can't find my children. And that is so active. I'm like, oh my God, what is that about? And I figured out for me, like I, ha I do have two children who are becoming adults now, they're young adults. And I know as a parent, it's the fear of losing my kids, you know, because they're no longer my little kids, they're adults, right? So my brain's trying to resolve that feeling of loss through a nightmare of me losing my kids actually in the airport. It's unfamiliar to me. It's like, come on, come on. But that's what our brains do. And they're so powerful and, and being able to do that for us. We want to see that like, to, to transform that trauma is to see what the process is. This is normal that my brain is trying to do this. It's actually trying to keep me safe by doing this, which sounds weird, but it's actually what's happening. So you have, you feel so safe that you fall asleep that your brain's like, okay, remember the thing that you want to process? Here's some weird dreams and you're going to wake up all or you might be paralyzed for a few seconds and then you're waking up going, what? Some people who have experienced uh, sleep paralysis also see things like see actual like apparitions and stuff I don't know I'm wondering if you ever had that oh yes <laughs> yeah it's terrifying yeah the first time it ever happened I was it was when I first lived alone by myself and then that's when that started happening and I was like oh cool <laughs> you're like okay who else is living in my apartment yeah <laughs> your brain going Remember that thing that you need to process? Yeah. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what our bodies and minds are trying to do. Help us. Could I add something in here to this as well? Um, in, in my experience, you know, uh, to what you're talking about, and, and I struggled with this pretty much from a very, very young age, about my nightmares and flashbacks. So 
you know, how I dealt with it, or rather I, how I perceive I've dealt with this is that one of the big things I've done, and, and in the beginning of our conversation, we talked about voice. Well, one of the things I did was, well, is I talked about my story. So in the flashbacks and the nightmares that I, that I, that I had carried for pretty much most of my lifetime, I've pretty much subsided now. And it's only because of me writing my story and me talking about my story. And I've done this now repetitively more times than I can count. And within saying that, I, I, one, of our, one, of our, uh, one of our videos that we show to our participants where we talk about PTSD, RC PTSD, but more specifically PTSD. Obviously, there is a difference between the two of which I'm just talking about, but I'm just talking about PTSD now because that's what we're talking about. And we talk about nightmares and flashbacks. Well, one of the studies I saw from McGill, which they did many years ago, in uh, his study was where they had people write their story and then they had them verbally talk about it. And, it, and, it, and I'm not just talking about veterans. I'm talking about people that have, uh, that have had car accidents, uh, have had sexual trauma, but anyway, different forms of trauma is my point. Well, it's funny. I kind of took this upon myself without even realizing I was doing this by writing my story and then and then talking about my story. And the more times I did it, well, before I realized that I'm not having those dreams anymore. So I attribute my dreams, or rather my lack of dreams now, and my lack of flashbacks, only because I talked about my story versus having to keep it internalized. So my experience is that by talking about my story, I've taken away that ability to have those. But don't get me wrong, I could still come back someday and I could still have it if I get triggered, just like what Maria was saying. Uh, that could still very, very well happen to me. But I have the differences now that I have, obviously I have better coping strategies. So that if I do get that that that, that, that dream or that, that horrible nightmare that I used to get all the time, then I then obviously you know I'm going to deal with it in, 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 in an adult way if I can put it in a context. And uh, not react as I used to react, which would have been drugging, drinking, uh, uh, isolation. See, all these things people don't even consider why people do this from these nightmares. And this is part of it. So I wanted to throw that in there, knowing that if anybody listens to this, that there, that there is a way to do this. And my experience does not mean that your experience would be the same, but my experience telling you that look for different ways to help yourself with your nightmares and flashbacks because. It can get better, but uh, speaking from my own personal experience, but you need to do the research and see what's right for you. I don't want to throw that in. Yeah, uh, the uh, escapism route tends to be a very, <laughs> just a quick fix kind of, you know, to get away from it, whether it be alcohol, drugs, or hiding. There's so many different levels to it um, to just avoid that you know avoid what you're going through what you're trying to work out what you're trying to heal i absolutely love that the more you've spoken about it and written about it the more it has helped you and that to me just makes so much sense again it's like getting your voice and giving yourself the power instead of the trauma the power or the abuser the power you're taking the power back every single time you do that and eventually it just all adds up and it just becomes your strength and your process of healing. And then, yeah, then, then then these things have less power over you because you've been putting in that work. And yes, there's so many different ways to do it. And finding the right ways that work for you, of course, is incredibly important. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's very, very important, I think, for people to 
to just hear, you know, to say like, you know, you can do this, you can take back that power, you know, that felt like it has been lost for so long. You can, it might take a while, you know, it might take a long time, but that's okay. It'll be worth it once you actually have like a nightmare free nights and like, you know, you're, you know, you're the, the amount that you are getting triggered and having flashbacks, lessons and lessons that feeling is attainable and such a wonderful thing. Is there anything else that we would like to share about the gatehouse specifically before we start to wrap it up? That we're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes, <laughs> clearly. Twenty-five years. We've been amazing for twenty-five years. <laughs> I think. Um, I um, I think one of the things that makes the gatehouse so special um, is the amount of strength and vulnerability that our participants to pick up the phone um, and call us, um, to click that button to enter the Zoom room, um, to walk that first step up these stairs into this um, into this house, um, right? So it's kind of um, important to for us to constantly balance that, to acknowledge that the amount of courage it takes to just show up, um, even if they don't share it in the group, which is totally fine, right? Um, because that's where they are in their journey. Um, so I just wanted to highlight um, just, just that aspect of healing, um, how it's not easy, how, like Maria mentioned, you know, there's minimizing, there's dismissing, there's not being believed, the childhood, and so forth. Um, so for survivors to um, the courage, the strength it takes to be that vulnerable in this space and show up to foster community, to foster connection within themselves, within the other participants, um, it really, really is a special thing. So I just wanted to acknowledge and highlight that as part of the chaos experience. Yes, thank you so much. Absolutely. That first step is gigantic. It's probably one of the biggest steps anyone can take. So it's so important to celebrate that and share that in such a safe, supportive environment is, yeah, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. This again was a conversation with Maria, Stewart, and Jasmine from The Gatehouse in Toronto. My name is Michelle Crossman, and until next time, this is Moving Beyond Stigma.